Greetings, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to let you understand how I'm about to share this message. 1 Peter 4.11 states, If any man minister, actually it says speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to allow God by his spirit to speak through us those words that are not of ourselves but are out of God. We are to speak prophetically as the spirit we allow to rise within us and to speak and free flowly through our utterances. This is only possible out of being in a conscious state of worship before God. As it says in Revelations chapter 19, the angel speaking to the apostle John commands him and says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worship towards Jesus Christ, who is the expression of God to creation and to man in particular that there comes the rising of the spirit of prophecy because as we are focused on who god is and become reciprocative to the very being of god and of his spirit we are infused with his spirit that rises within us to come forth out of our mouth as Christ said, the words that I speak are spirit and life. And so I will seek to speak prophetically to you. And part of what I do in regards to this is to seek the passage of scripture that God is wanting to minister from to me as an individual and to the body of Christ. And I do that by the casting of lots where there is an equal chance of it being on any particular chapter in the whole of the Bible. So today I received Matthew chapter 13. Also, I always seek to minister immediately after re reading and meditating on the passage. Usually it's a half an hour of meditation and notes, and that is the case today. I've just uh, finished meditating on Matthew 13 and without hardly any preparation except a few notes within that half hour, I allow the Spirit of God to have the freedom to speak through me because I haven't made some intellectual uh, outline that holds me in a box. So I will begin to read from Matthew chapter 13. And this is a rather long passage. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, 
because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who had the ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When any one heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh a wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And the servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. 
but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took, and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leaven. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answering and said unto them, He that soweth the seed, that is the good seed, is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchantman, seeking goodly pearls, who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then he said unto them, Therefore every scribe, which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven, is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things old and new. And it came to pass when, that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren James and Joes and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, 
A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This passage is about the kingdom of heaven. And how the kingdom of heaven comes. It's not merely going to be, as most of us realize, an outward kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is within you, as Christ said. The important thing that brings the kingdom of heaven onto the earth is the coming of the kingdom of heaven into your heart and my heart. That involves entering in to a heart relationship, first of all, with God, and also, of course, a heart relationship with one another that comes out of that heart relationship with Elohim, the Almighty's One. And I will say for those that are totally new and are not exposed to any Christian background or roots, I want to give you a brief understanding here which is not related to the message of God. We do not worship or believe in three gods, but only one God. But for God to truly be almighty, to truly be God, to truly be the creator, not only from the past, but ever presently, almighty and creator and creative and forever being enlarged in creative expressions of love that go on and on and on. For God to truly be God certainly involves that he is in conscious personage, conscious being and intelligence in the ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, which is the created realm, and filling all space in the created realm. God, that's the originator and sees the end from the beginning, governs beyond the time and space realm and is known as the Father. The word Father basically means originator and has the understanding of maturity through time that sees the end from the beginning. Actually, God is even beyond time as the Father, sees the end from the beginning. And before he creates, he has already had it fully planned in his heart as to exactly how that creation will be and how the outcome will be because he sees the end from the beginning. God, therefore, to truly be God, must be in personage, that is conscious intelligence, must be in his very being beyond time and space. 
to truly be God beyond time and space. And if he wasn't, he would not be God. But he also must be in personage, in the time and space realm, which is the created realm, the realm that he has created. The word son means expression. The word son has the understanding of being the expression of the father. Obviously, a son is the expression of his father. The son has the understanding of God being expressed into the created realm. And if God were not in personage, that is in conscious, intelligent identity, within the created realm, he would not be God. Because you cannot genuinely rule if you're not willing to enter in and inherit what you've created. And then for God to be truly God, he must fill all things. And that is God as the Holy Spirit. So we have God as the Father beyond time and space and the originator. We have God as the Son, the full expression of the Father into time and space. And God is the Holy Spirit filling all space. And this name, the Almighty's one, which is uh, the best uh, way to describe the word Elohim, is one of the names of God in the Bible. And in Genesis, it's God, as God is speaking, it is recorded that he said, let us make man in our image. That is God within the triunity of his governance and personage, speaking within himself, saying, let us make man in our image. Now, let us be on with this message here. We are talking about the heart relationship with God and with one another. That the kingdom of God involves coming into our hearts and it is when there is that transformation in one's heart in conformity to who God is that the rule of God can come through us. And so here we have a parable of the seed. The seed that falls on the good ground and bears fruit in contrast with the seed that falls into ground that is not conducive for that seed to come forth into maturity and to bear fruit. Conversion involves a deep turning of one's heart to God. It's not a mere intellectual assent. It is not a mere intellectual persuasion. I could go into great depth on describing conversion. It is coming to the place of truly choosing to recognize God for who he truly is 
not merely intellectually, but from our heart, so that there is a receptivity to who God in reality is. And I could go into a lot in this, and I tend to sometimes get sidetracked that way. All I briefly want to say here is that God is love, and love is defined basically the agape love, which is the highest form of love described in uh, various verses in the Bible, is a love that is always choosing the highest good over any more immediate fulfillment, which would obviously therefore be less than the highest good and therefore would contain a measure of corruption. This love always chooses the highest good and has such integrity that it is innate to be, as it were, a blazing fire, a consuming fire of judgment against all that would be contrary to love. Every word, thought, deed, and action that is contrary to choosing the highest good has corruption in it. Only love, this love that is ultimate and pure, is without corruption. It is known as the holiness of God. It is that aspect of love that has absolute purity, absolute integrity to judge all that is contrary to it. It is the holiness of God. And it is from the foundation of that integrity of love, that is the holiness of God, that there can spring forth creativity and love that is without corruption and that can go on forever and ever and ever. What is amazing is that without violating this integrity of love, this love is so great in its creativity that God was able to provide destiny for you as an individual for creation because he took judgment upon himself so that you could be forgiven and cleansed of all the judgment that deserved to fall upon you because of your from your own free will violating the integrity of his love the holiness of god but until there's a true recognition from the heart that we are guilty and deserve the judgment of God, how can you possibly believe that God is able to provide you mercy or that he's even good? It takes a recognition of who God is in the integrity of his love that is without offense in the heart. Many people are offended at the consequences of all the suffering in their own lives and that they observe around us that God allows. But those are the consequences of beings created with their own free will choosing to go against the integrity of God's love that always chooses the highest lasting good. Those are the consequences. 
It's like the wind of our spirit is offended at this water that is so perfect and so pristine and so clear and so perfect and filled with life that the waves of consequences cause that water to become mighty waves that reverberate into our lives with terrible consequences of suffering and cause the ship of many people's lives to sink in offense and be drowned in the waters of judgment because they've refused to acknowledge the holiness of God and that behind that holiness there is that which is ultimately good because only this holiness of God can contain life without corruption, unlimited life and power without corruption, and therefore that which is ultimately good and ultimately whole. And so it is there that there is wholeness. It is found in being receptive to the holiness of God because God is holy. He can be entrusted with unlimited life and power to contain it in goodness and to bring out of that wholeness to you. And that was ultimately revealed in the fact that God himself took judgment upon himself and absorbed judgment for, the, for man on the cross through Jesus Christ and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffered more than you, a mere creature. And so, in the heart, when there is a choice to rightly recognize, first of all, that the holiness of God is good, and that God is good out of his holiness, then there is the choice to be open to the fact that God actually is so good that he is able to provide mercy by perfect atoning sacrifice and only God could be a perfect atoning sacrifice that could live a sinless life as Christ did and through his obedience as it were took the first man Adam and nailed him to death on the cross in whom the whole human race came from and experienced the reverberations and consequences of sin and so when we recognize that and we receive him into our lives and say God be merciful to me a sinner forgive me and cleanse me he the kingdom of God actually comes into our heart there's a deep turning in the heart it's not some mere intellectual ascent as Christ said there was a publican that was so broken in his heart that he was put his face in the ground and beat his breast and cried from the depths of his heart and cried with a loud voice and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he beat his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Christ said, that publican, which means he is probably a tax collector and someone that is not looked at and well by the people, went home justified. But the Pharisees that said, I thank God I fast three times a week. I thank God I, I am not like that publican. I do all these good things. I do all these outward performances. Christ said they were not at all justified before God. So this is what is involved in a true entering of the kingdom of God into one's heart. 
it is the choice to genuinely fear God. To genuinely fear God is to genuinely recognize God first in his holiness, and out of that, to recognize that God is able to provide mercy through perfect atoning sacrifice, which could only be in the being of God himself, to have that kind of perfection of love, to be able to do that. And that was ultimately revealed on the cross. But it was recognized because they saw in the being of God the full expression of who God was to them from the very time of Adam and Eve. Enoch had such a close relationship with God that he was translated from this world. So did Elijah and others. They were truly born of the Spirit because they received the actual mercy of God that was expressed to them through the Father. Christ said, whoever has learned of the Father comes unto me. And indeed, they had been taught by God the Father. They'd come to the place of recognizing the mercy of God that is expressed in his Son. And the fact that in his being, there was perfect atoning sacrifice that was before the world was even created in the being of God, as it says in Revelations 18, for example. It is the genuine fear of God that recognizes God first in his holiness and out of that recognizes the mercy of God that God is able to forgive, that he's able to assure mercy and destiny to you as an individual that brings that deep turning of the heart like the publican experienced of true conversion. But here is the issue. In this passage, we see that one can receive this truth, but not continue in it. And so we have the parable of the various conditions of the seed. And I want to point out that these four parables of the seed are amplified in the following parables and are explained all the more. And this is explaining the very mystery of how the kingdom of God comes into the human heart, but also how it will come into the world outwardly and ultimately accumulate as described here in the time when the wicked will be judged and removed from the earth and the kingdom of God will come onto the earth. But it first involves understanding the mysteries of these four conditions of heart described in the parable of the seed and how they are amplified in the other parables that are in this passage of Scripture. The first seed is described in verses 18 to 19. And so we'll briefly go to that particular section. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. The heart that does not understand is hardened to certain aspects of truth so that it is not able to put all the pieces of truth together so that they result in a conversion 
and an ongoing transformation. There are various verses that make it clear in the scripture that it is the hardness of the heart that darkens the understanding. This is described in the book of Ephesians. And because I'm ad-libbing this, I don't have time to give you the specific verse. But it says that it's through the hardness of people's heart that their understanding is darkened. And here understanding has the understanding, as you look at the meaning of this Greek word here, it's basically this. It means to put together, mentally to comprehend. But it's not merely a mental comprehension. It's a comprehension of the heart. And when there's a real comprehension in the heart that puts things together, because you're open to the, every part of what is being put before you that is reality and truth. For example, if you're offended at the holiness of God, then you're not open to the full reality of who God is. For example, if you're deceived to believe that God receives all people, no matter what their heart condition is, then you've got a distorted view of God whose love has no integrity. You are twisting the integrity of God's love so that God really is looked at as a Santa Claus, as someone that receives everyone and therefore is conforming to corruption and therefore you have an idolatrous view of God. So there's two idolatrous views of God. One is of a God that is holy, but it is not the genuine holiness or the genuine integrity of God. It is a distorted view of the holiness of God that views God as a master and a tyrant and does not recognize the goodness that is behind the holiness of God because it is the holiness of God that is the foundation for the goodness of God to hold unlimited life and power without corruption in a state of goodness and creativity that is ever enlarging forever and ever into greater realms of fulfillment. Not only for God, but for you as that one that would choose to enter into the assurance of forgiveness by repenting and receiving his provision of perfect atoning sacrifice, which was ultimately revealed on the cross, but was known from the very beginning of the creation of the world and was in the very being of God from the infinite past. I don't have time to go in to explain how Enoch and Abraham and all of those experienced the genuine rebirth. Christ expected Nicodemus before he died on the cross to understand that as well. And this is not the time to go into that. So this is one of the things that blinds people, is hardness in the heart. And the reason there's that hardness is because there is some aspect of the truth of God that one is not willing to let themselves be open to. If you are brought up in a religious background where you have an idolatrous view of God that came out of the rebellion of Cain, and I will tell you that you can go to the archaeologist David Rohl, which is a renowned archaeologist that is not even a believer, and he traces... And he shows that in the pre-flood world, Cain built a city. And it was an idolatrous city with an idolatrous view of one God. He shows the evidence 
of that city of Cain after the flood being rebuilt again by Nimrod. And there's all the historical evidence there in the clay tablet writings. Then you can trace it down to the place where they worship again this distorted view of God, which is viewed as a tyrant, which is viewed as someone that is demanding and does not recognize the mercy of God. Later, there's the moon god that comes out of that. And that moon god was in the time of Abraham in the Ur of Chaldees, which had walls that were 80 feet tall and 70 feet wide that went for miles, a very sophisticated city, the very first of the cities in civilization. And that moon god was this demanding god that even demanded human sacrifices, and Abraham was called by God out of that idolatrous environment. But then we see that this moon god was taken up by the Babylonians. And then there was the 360 gods and the, among the Arabians at that, that black rock that they walk around to this day. 360 gods, but the main god that was above them all was known as the moon god and was called the god, meaning Allah. And then later on, there was Mohammed, and he renounced that moon god, but they still to this day go around that rock where there was all those 360 gods and the main one being the moon god. Anyhow, that's just a little background. So there can be many different backgrounds that have a distorted view of God, including many in Christianity, where you have a counterfeit grace or a legalism that is self-righteous. But the understanding becomes darkened when you are not willing to be open to the truth of who God really is because you have your identity more in your own self-righteousness, which is a state of self-worship that is delusional and is not what God ever intended man to enter into. When there's the genuine fear of God, you are brought to a place of utter humility like that publican before God. You are in awe of who he is. You are aware of your utter dependence upon him that you cannot be righteous within yourself, that your source of life and your source of righteousness is in God. And it is only God that could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. And if it was a creature, we would be worshiping a creature and glorifying a creature for saving us. Only God is the source of salvation and of ongoing salvation. So we have that first condition of the heart. And then we have... In verses 20 to 22, the heart that receives the word with joy but does not continue is because of no root in one's soul that is deep and immovable. This is described in verses 20 to 22. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet he hath not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. This means they have sought identity in other things without having established integrity in themselves that cannot be moved by what is delusional and false. That is the state of the heart of those that will receive the preaching of people like Billy Graham and others, whoever it is, 
they'll receive it with joy. But soon as trials come into their life, they're offended. They're offended that God allowed this and he allowed that in their life to the point that they lose an abiding relationship of their heart and God and fall away. The reason is because of no root in one soul that is deep and immovable. In other words, they've sought identity in other things without having first established integrity in their own heart that roots them strongly in being able to divide from that which is merely a delusion and a deception to manipulate their lives and that which is genuine. Because they're seeking identity in the temporal realm or in some other experience other than the one true God. There are many examples, again, of people who enter into such a situation. They haven't really found identity in who they are in relation to God. It's more in the things of this world. There are many things that can move people away in this direction so that they find justification for their offense that God would allow such things in their lives. Not recognizing that God is creative and that whatever he allows is for a purpose. They would rather violate the integrity of their relationship with God and put identity in other things Then we have the third, which is the thorns that choke the divine seed in us that is growing. And that's with temporal securities and pleasures that take priority over seeking God and his will and plan for our lives. So this is where the heart is choked out because priorities are focused on that are the temporal priorities over the more vital, important priorities of our relationship with God. And so it is that in especially the materialistic world of this day and age, in so many societies that are very materialistic in North America and in Europe and so on, people get into the spin of going on and on with the same routine every day of struggling to make a living, struggling because they want this and they want that in their lives. And they've lost sight of what is far more important, their relationship with God. It is far better to give up a high-paying job so that you can have a personal time of prayer with God every day than to take a high-paying job. Are we willing to pay that price? Others are drawn away by the gods of amusement and pleasure. And they're more interested in watching a hockey game or the football game, and they spend way more time on those things than they do in any time with prayer with God. 
And yet the word of God says we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. Where are the days when men like Wesley and others were condemned all of this idleness that is accepted today in the church? Did not it say, does it not say in 1 John that if any man love the world, the love of the, not, of the Father is not in him, and all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not, as the, not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So if you're caught up with the gods of pleasure and amusement, amusement and that's where your focus and your energy and your priorities are, do you think that you, your heart is going to be soft and tender towards God and towards your wife? You are in an adulterous relationship with God because you're married to the loves of the world. And that has formed a shell of hardness on your heart that is causing you to have a bad relationship with others, and in particular your wife. And then people wonder why there's so much divorce and remarriage. When there's that hardness of heart, there is not the humility that is in conformity to God, as we see it in Christ, who humbled himself more than us mere creatures so that we could receive his mercy and forgiveness. And so we are not willing to go to our wife or to our husband and as it were to wash their feet in humility and say, forgive me, I have been wrong in what I just did. What would happen if the Holy Spirit spoke to you wife or you husband and told you to go and to wash their feet his or her feet would you obey and do it i know the testimony of one lady that was about to divorce her husband and god challenged her to wash her husband's feet with a towel and she kept resisting and finally decided to do it and he broke down in tears and said no no don't do that and you know what that broke the hardness. And to, she said, now they've been married for 25 years. Now, isn't that a wonderful testimony? And so God is calling us as his people to not be choked by the cares of this life so that we lose out on our relationship with God and with one another. And we end up in divorce and in divisions in the body of Christ and in denominationalism. And then we have the seed that does grow and is fruitful, described in verse 23. But he that received the seed into good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. It's he that hears the word and understands it. I've already explained that understanding is related to the hardness of heart. When there's hardness of heart, our focus is on other things so that we're not re willing to receive all those aspects that make up the truth. Thus, there is not the comprehension in the heart that can comprehend who God is and his goodness. We have a distorted view of God as a tyrant or a dictator on the one hand, or as some sugar daddy on the other hand that has no integrity in his love, no holiness. And so we are deceived 
into false teachings that justify those two idolatrous aspects from which spring all forms of idolatry against that are contrary to the kingdom of God. In Luke 8, 15, it describes the good ground this way, but that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience or perseverance. It involves two things, an honest and a good heart. And I remember looking up some time ago the word for honest, and I believe here it comes from the word uh, which is the word from which humble comes from. It has to do with soil being soft. It's, I think, the Greek word humus. And again, I'm going by memory, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. So it's when we learn to break up the hardness of our heart each day by setting aside time to seek God and putting God first in our priorities at whatever the cost is, even if it means we lose our job and we don't know our source of income, do you not think that we can trust God to provide our needs? He will provide us what is far better and with the time to have fellowship with him. But we must learn to break the hard ground in our hearts that so easy, easily can collect and rob us of our relationship with God. It says in the word of God, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk you in him. And the way we receive Christ in truth is when there's a true circumcision in the inner depths of our heart, like that publican that cries out to God. That involves quality time, learning to be in awe of who God is, learning to curb our own presumptuous self-initiated words and actions before God and be in utter awe of who he is and his holiness, out of which we perceive him in the greatness of his mercy to have forgiven us through perfect atoning sacrifice that, was the very, that is the very essence of love in his being the ultimate plus, the negative representing the holiness of God and the plus representing the mercy of God that springs out of that foundation represented in the negative symbol, in the symbol of the cross, the ultimate positive of the universe. That's what releases the flow of life or electricity is when we recognize, first of all, the holiness of God represented in the cutting off of all corruption, represented in solid foundation without corruption, from which springs forth the symbol of the cross. That is the mercy of God, that God took upon himself, judgment upon himself upon the cross. Do you know that the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, when you go back to 2000 BC, or actually 1500 BC and earlier, is the exact symbol of the cross that is used on churches today. And it means, and it meant back then, that letter means this, sign, symbol, signature. It is the sign from God of his ultimate love for you as an individual. Now, the various parables that come after the description of these conditions of heart, I will share with you now. For they are an amplification of describing the kingdom of God coming into us as individuals and also of its outward manifestation in the end time judgment. And the first parable that Christ gives to amplify the things that 
are in these four conditions of the heart. The first one is the enemy sowing terrors among the good seed. Now this is speaking more of what is happening not only in an individual heart, the enemy can creep in and begin to sow what is corrupt in our hearts. And that's been explained in what we just explained of the various conditions that rob us from a heart relationship with God. But it also is speaking here about those that have allowed their heart to be corrupted either by hardness that blinds understanding or wrong identity by violating integrity in who we are before God or in pleasures of this world and temporal fulfillments becoming the focus. Those are the things that creep into our heart and cause a terror to grow that can choke out that new divine seed that is growing in us, that God's intention is that it should grow into fullness and become fruitful, that we should be renewed in the spirit of our mind and our soul should be expanded into greater and greater transformation. And how does that happen? It happens through trials. And let's face it, everyone in the world goes through trials. But we have the privilege through every contradiction to experience if we abide in God in this vital heart relationship of reciprocating who God is out of the fear of God, of reciprocating the greatness of his mercy and thus his love to us, and letting it redound out of thanksgiving back unto God in the way we live our lives and in our times of seeking him. That can bring forth a relationship of total transformation in every trial. Every contradiction and trial is used creatively to conform us to the image of God, to transform us to the point that those trials cannot move us or affect us in our relationship with God. But also, what happens is some allow the terrors to take over their heart and others abide like the good ground in God and they become those that are truly ready to enter into the kingdom of God instead of being bound and cast into the place of eternal judgment and fire in hell forever. So that's the first parable that is described there and goes on till about verse 31. And then there's another parable that Christ brings forth here. It is that the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. This is revealing another secret to allowing the kingdom of God to fully grow and expand in our hearts. And that secret is to be like a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is very small, but it is very strongly filled with life so that it can be put into the most contradictory conditions, desert conditions, and still sprout with life. 
the smallness of the mustard seed speaks of the utter humility before God, the utter reverence in who God is in his holiness and out of and in his mercy to us. When we really have our identity and a relationship with God that is reciprocative of the utter awe of who God is and his holiness, there is nothing in us that is puffed up and proud. We are we see ourselves as nothing apart from the life that is in God. And so there is a vitality of life within us because there is a dependency that is totally abiding in the life of God that comes out of the humility. God says in his word that he resists the proud but gives grace unto the humble. And the word of God commands us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to us. And the secret is to be in that place, the secret place of the Most High, to be hidden in the secret place with God, where we die to that which is puffed up within us of our own self-initiations. How do we do that? By learning to wait on God. Waiting on God is curbing our own self-initiations. Learning to be still and know that he is God. What does it say in Ecclesiastes chapter 5? It says, God is in heaven and thou on earth in verse 1. Therefore, let thy words be few. It's emphasizing. And be not hasty to utter anything for before God. Be aware of whose presence you're in. Be in utter awe of who he is. Be in that place of humility that allows a dependency of relationship that's reciprocative and who God is, that allows the life of God to be strong in you in the midst of the greatest contradictions. You seek nothing but the glory of God, and you desire nothing but his glory. You are dead to the world, as it says in the word of God. You're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. There's no desire for self-glory. There's no identity in the acceptance of people around us. We have died to those things. Which is indeed the least of all seeds. And then he describes another parable and he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Again, this is a similar description to the mustard seed. It is the allowing of a place of total hiddenness in our relationship with God. Where we don't seek glory or acceptance from people or anything else. We delight to be in a place of being totally hidden in God and not to be revealed to others to be anything until we know that what is in us is really of God and that it hasn't been us that has sought anything out of an impure motive of identity and people or anything else. And so that allows the kingdom of God to expand and grow because we're not seeking anything. But our delight is in a relationship with God that delights to be hidden, that delights to not be known because we know that when we are seeking nothing else but God, then we can know God. We can know intimacy and fellowship and relationship with him that feeds us the living bread of life. Like this bread here, it becomes palatable. It becomes a relationship that is 
fully fulfilling. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the word of God says. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. And the only way that we can open the mouth of our heart wide is when we are in the secret place. And that secret place is only possible for the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And it is out of the genuine fear of God that we abide in the place where he can expand and grow in our heart to be manifested in his glory to others without any self-glory coming to ourselves. Now I want to go on to the next parable that is amplifying the condition of the heart here. And so the next part of what we read here is that in verse 34, Hope I got the same chapter here. Sometimes things happen. One sec. Okay, verse 34. And again, it's emphasized here. And all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable he spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And what I'm sharing with you here is that which has been kept secret since the beginning of the plans of the world were laid. Then Jesus sent the multitude away. And his disciples came unto him and said, Declare unto us the parable of the terrors in the field. And I've already explained that. But the reason he spoke to them in parables, as is described in this chapter, is because they were not open to the measure of truth God had already gave them. Therefore, he could not give them more truth, for that would only bring them further away and a greater darkness within them. For Christ said, if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? Therefore, how important it is that when we hear the word of God, that we are reciprocative to it to who God is and is being revealed in his word, which is the very expression of who he is. Jesus Christ himself is called the word, which means expression. Okay. And then we go again. And it describes again another aspect of the secret of the kingdom of God coming into your heart and mind and as a result, accumulating in the end of history, in the reaping of the harvest, the bringing forth of the bride church and the judgment of the wicked. And so he describes here the kingdom of God as in verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. There's a verse in Hebrews that says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The way we take up our cross, the way we come to the place of dying to the world, is by having the revelation that it's worth it all. When we see who God is in the greatness of his love toward us, when we see that our destiny can be to forever with God in heaven and with his angels and with his family as a corporate bride, it's worth it all. 
That's why Paul the Apostle by the Holy Spirit said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. It is worth it all. Without a vision, the people perish. And if you do not have the vision in your heart of who God is in his relationship with you, your heart is hard. And you need to pray and say, God, help my unbelief. God, take the blind hardness off my heart. Open my eyes to see how beautiful and how great my destiny is in you. How great it is to have a relationship with you that goes on forever and ever. Oh, when we get a glimpse of that, will it not, will it really be hard to sell everything to embrace what is of eternal value and worth? That's why Christ said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Because when we really see who he is, it's worth it all. It's a joy to pay the price to embrace what is far greater, that there's no comparison. It is like comparing dung. With eternal bliss and love that is ever expanding and enlargement. And again, he emphasizes this with another one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And of course, then he has the description of the fish. And this again is a similar description as to the wheat and the tares, going from verse 47 to verse 50. And then we have at the end the description in this passage of Christ not being accepted by his own closest of kin, his brothers and his sisters. They were offended. How could it be that someone like Christ could have, how could this person, who's the same as us mere humans, have all this? Their eyes, the eyes of their heart, was veiled. And this is an illustration of how easy it is to be offended, to begin to have a hard heart so that we're not open to truth. Because our identity is so strong in our roots of the family we were brought up in, of the religious background that we were brought up in, that we become hope offended that there could possibly be that which is beyond our own roots and background that we're so proud of. And so, God cannot move in the miraculous and in the power of his spirit where there is offense. Offense because our pride is hurt. The kingdom of God demands the total death to pride. It demands that we have such love that when people offend us, that are more in the wrong, that we can be like Christ and stand in the gap and actually go to that person and admit our faults to them and as it were, wash their feet so that the hardness in their heart will be broken by our act of love, to choose to forgive them even when they haven't come to the place of repentance. 
And when we do that, it breaks the hardness in their heart and brings them to the place of repentance so they can be forgiven by God. It is what the Word of God says, that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved us first that we might enter into love with him. And when we choose to love those that are hard to love and those that have offended us and hurt us, and to ask God to give us the grace to truly show love to them, to truly show forgiveness to them, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, the word of God commands us to receive one another as Christ received us. We've seen the greatness of God's mercy to us because we are reciprocative of the very being of God that is love manifested in his atoning love on the cross. They are crystallized for us so clearly. If we really see that, how can it be that we cannot receive one another as Christ received us, even when the other person is more in the wrong? We are called to go out of our way, to wash as it were their feet with the word of God that they might be healed. Recognize that their heart is for God. They may have all kinds of faults and things that are not in conformity to God that offend us and hurt us. But recognize, have they received the love of God? Is their heart for God? And look past their faults. The word of God says that, we're, that love covers a multitude of sins. Let the love of God be shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit to give you the enablement beyond yourself to love those that you have been offended at. Or even God in allowing things to happen in your life. I tell you, if you do these things, you will not be the terrors. But if you do not have this in your heart, this love, and you haven't reciprocated this love from God and recognized the greatness of his love to you and his mercy to you so that you can show that to others, the question then must be, have you ever in the first place been born again? Have you been deceived to think you're converted when you really are not? Will you be those that of whom it will say, Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. It says that many will come in my name saying, have we not cast out devils? Have we not done many wonderful works? Many will come in my name and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because you never enter into a true heart relationship of being reciprocative to God's mercy towards you because you'd never in the first place even recognize the holiness of God. You were offended at it or you were offended at something that God allowed in your life, or you were offended at some individual, and you allowed that bitterness to destroy your relationship with God. God is calling us to be taking heed, lest any root of bitterness would come among us and defile many. We need to be our brother's keeper and go out of our way to be sure that bitterness is conquered with love, and that we are salt that speak the truth in love that we don't conform to fearing the rejection of others because we speak the truth to them. And on the other hand, that we don't fail to show them the grace of God by being willing to wash their feet even when they're more in the wrong and maybe totally in the wrong. Let us be those that choose to speak the truth in love and to forgive 
without compromise in our hearts towards others that are not walking in the truth. May God bless you all for listening to this message and may it bear fruit in your life. Until again, God bless you all.